You guys are so quiet now. You guys sounded so good singing. Man, yesterday was the sounds of football back and everything like that, but this morning the sound of you guys singing praise, and I'll take this any day. So, so good. So I want to begin this morning, though, with a really, really important question. Will the Iowa State Cyclones finally snap a five-game losing streak to the Iowa Hawkeyes coming up this Saturday? Yes? No? Whoa, we have a house divided. We've got enemies in the room. That's good. You know, you got to admire the Cyclones' optimism for this season, right? I mean, they come in, they're ranked number seven in the nation. They have five of the top 100 players on their roster, including their quarterback and their running back, Brees Hall. Uh, uh, they are dreaming of winning the Big 12, of making the college football playoffs, winning a Heisman for Brees Hall, and shocking the world, right? In fact, Brees Hall says this. He says, we've earned the expectations people have for us. We know how good we can be. Cyclones are starting the season, beginning with a certain end in mind that they believe they can achieve, that it's going to be their best season in school history. But will they get there? They got to go through Iowa first. We'll see. When you're starting something new, a new season, or a, a, a new year, or a new series like we're doing right now, it's always good to begin with the end in mind, to have some expectation of where you're going. So as we're kicking off this new year and this new series, I want to begin with a picture of our hopes and our dreams for you. Actually, I want to start with, uh, with a picture of Jesus' hopes and dreams for us. One of his first followers, Matthew, uh, he actually tells us that Jesus began his ministry by talking to people that, uh, and telling people that the kingdom of God and God's power and presence was with them right now. And then he started proving it by healing a bunch of people. And so as we know, the crowd started growing and Jesus began to teach them all about this coming kingdom of God and inviting them to be a part of it. And so Jesus said things like this. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It keeps going. I think it keeps going. <laughs> blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus begins with all these sayings that, of what will be for certain groups of people in his Father's kingdom. And many of the people that Jesus is taking, speaking to were desperate for these things to be true. But see, the way of the world was not producing this kind of life. And the way of religion and all its rules was actually preventing people from being able to experience this. So Jesus comes on the scene and he says, listen, God is doing something new. God is providing a third way. Follow me. I am the third way, Jesus says. I'm here to show you this new way. And it's not the way of the world. 
And it's not the way of religion. It's God's way. And you're all invited. See, Jesus starts with the end in mind. Here's what life lived God's way will be like. It will result in blessing and in joy and in a life rich and full, not dependent on your circumstances in any way. It's a life that will produce more of what God values. Things like humility and compassion and gentleness and mercy, purity of heart. Peace. Jesus begins with the end in mind and says, follow me. Let me show you what it's like. Let me show you the third way. So as we start this third way series, I want to encourage you, just like Jesus encourages us. If we want to live the third way, it's important to begin with the end in mind. It's important to begin with the picture Jesus paints of where he's leading us. And then we need to keep this picture in front of us as we follow Jesus because the third way is not easy. The third way is challenging. Because the way of the world will tempt us to chase a whole bunch of stuff for ourselves, things that that we want for ourselves, things like wealth or just security. Or I want to just be in control of my circumstances just a little bit. I want to I be comfortable. And it's easy to get that stuff confused for the life that Jesus is leading us to. But seeking those things first for ourselves is not Jesus' way. And neither is the way of religion. Right? Religion focuses on earning God's love and blessing. Religion's, religion says we earn God's approval and his acceptance by getting really good at following a bunch of rules. And the way of religion only ends in two different places. It either ends in a a sense of failure because we'd never master the rules, and then there's disappointment and shame that go with us, or religion ends with a sense of moral superiority that simply produces a system of comparison and judgment and abuses of power. See, hashtag earn it is a great football slogan, but it's not Jesus third way of life. Jesus is the third way. He is the truth. He is the life that God seeks for his people. So after beginning with this end in mind, Jesus continues to teach about what this third way looks like, and it's recorded in Matthew's book. Matthew wrote a book about his experiences with Jesus, and in chapters 5, 6, and 7, you can read all about this teaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus' manifesto, his public declaration of God's aim for our lives. And over and over again, Jesus declares things like, you've heard it said that God's way is like this, but I'm here to tell you it's actually like this. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I say, don't let your anger carry you away. Because if you do, it's going to lead you to break God's law of love. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you to love your spouse, not just with your body, but with your heart and with your mind. See, the world embraces things like anger and lust 
and revenge because it's a quick fix, right, to help us satisfy our needs and our desires and our wants. But Jesus says, listen, by now you've realized how that stuff destroys your relationships. It never ends well. And he says also that, that religion never ends well either. Right? Choosing to simply obey rules just creates this messed up system of comparison and judgment. That doesn't end well either. But the third way, Jesus' way, begins by putting God's love and love for others at the center of our hearts and our lives and our minds. Making this our first priority produces mercy and grace and forgiveness, and kindness and peace, the things that our broken world are desperate for today. So I think Jesus' way, his third way has more power than we could ask for or imagine to restore our broken world. I think if we would spend the rest of our lives simply reading those three chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and immersed ourselves in this teaching of Jesus, and then figured out how to carry it out in practical ways, not only would our daily lives change, but the world around us would begin to be transformed. In fact, I want to encourage you to just park yourself in those three chapters over the next four weeks while we're in the middle of this series to, to read them and reread those three chapters over and over and just simply on a daily basis ask, God, how would you like me to live this out in my relationship with you and others today? Father, will you show me your third way and will you help me to walk in it? Because I know I need your help. I know that I'll, that I'll fail, I'll fall short, but I also know that the third way is full of forgiveness and full of grace. So Lord, will you help me to see your third way and to walk in it? So at the heart of Jesus' third way, the heart of this manifesto, as I said, is this higher love. Higher love, like Steve Winwood sang about in the 80s. Bring me a higher love. Take the man out of the 80s. You can't take the 80s out of the man. <laughs> Jesus talks about this love this way. He says this. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Sounds good so far. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says it's not enough for us to love those people who love us. It's not enough for us to love the people who look like us, who act like us, who live like the, us, believe like us. He says, no, I want you to love the people who look different and act different and believe different and live different than you. I want you to love the people who oppose you, who even hate you. Some of those people that you might not like very much either. I won't say hate because we don't hate anybody as Christians, right? Could there be a more important message for us right now? Could there be a more relevant encouragement for the church, for Team Jesus, as Alice called us, 
Right? Followers who find ourselves caught in the middle of culture wars and this, this cancel culture that's pushing us to turn our friends into opponents and make our opponents our enemies. One in four of us lost friends last year because of the candidate we supported in an election. Jesus doesn't say, make sure those people who disagree with you get it right. Jesus doesn't say to just ignore them and just keep on going. He says, I want you to love those people who oppose you. Love your enemies. This is what makes the third way so different than any other way. It's radically different than how both the world and religion actually operate. He says, this is how the world will know my father's love for them. He loves perfectly. He doesn't show any favoritism. He doesn't withhold the sun from evil people. And God doesn't keep the clouds from watering the crops of people who reject him or who aren't in a good or right relationship with him. And neither should we. We shouldn't hold back on sharing our best gifts with people just because they don't love us or because they reject God or Jesus or don't live up to some moral code we have for their lives. And if that's true about spiritual matters, then we certainly shouldn't hold back from loving people who have different political or social views than us. We are to welcome people who don't believe what we believe. We're called to love them. This was so important to Jesus. So important. He didn't just speak it and teach it. He lived this out everywhere he went. And I'm not talking about just with the strangers that he met or enemies he ran into on the street who opposed him. I'm talking about with those closest to him. When I, when I thought about this and read about this, like, it was so surprising to me. See, Jesus wasn't like other rabbis. Other rabbis, people would come along and they'd say, hey, can we follow you? As a student would come along and say, I want to follow you. Is it all right? Can I be your disciple? And they would allow somebody to be their disciple. But Jesus actually went out and recruited his disciples. And he spent time thinking about it. In fact, Luke tells us that he spent an entire night praying about this decision, about who would be his disciples, before he intentionally chose 12 people. Here's the 12 people that he chose. Just real quick. Peter and Andrew and James and John, these are two sets of brothers. So there's at least two sets of brothers in this group, and we know a little bit about each one of them. And then Philip and Bartholomew, and then Matthew, who's a tax collector that we just read about, tax collectors and how low a bar they had for love. And then we've got Thomas, who doubted Jesus, James, and then Simon, who's a zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and then Judas Iscariot, who would go on to betray Jesus. So what? So what are you saying, Jeff? Here's what. I don't think there's much of a chance that all of these guys loved each other when they first started hanging out with each other. In fact, there's a pretty good chance that some of these guys didn't like each other very well at all. As I said, you've got two sets of brothers to start with. And these guys are young. Experts say probably teenage, maybe a little bit older. But I, all I know is that my two boys, when my oldest was in high school, he wanted nothing to do with his younger brother. 
Just two years ago, he put his younger brother's butt through the wall, a little friendly competition down in the basement. These brothers, we know, argued with each other about who would be the greatest. And what do you suppose that did to the rest of the group? Like, what makes you guys think you're better than the rest of us, right? What makes you guys so awesome? I mean, they were jogging for position all the time. And then second, Jesus chooses Simon, who's a zealot. Right? Zealots belong to a political group that seek to overthrow the Roman government by any means necessary because their rights were being violated. And they were known to target Jewish people who were sympathetic to Rome. People just like Matthew, who was a tax collector. So he was employed by Rome in partnership with Rome for his career. Tax collectors were the enemies of everyone. But for a zealot like Simon, Matthew was likely a target of deep, deep hatred. And of course we got Peter who denied Jesus. Thomas, who doubted Jesus. Judas, who betrayed Jesus. There were plenty of enemies of Jesus and each other in this group. So if Jesus is trying to train a group to show the world a picture of God's love once he's gone, why would he intentionally choose this group of men? A group that not only would find it hard to love each other, but might find it hard not to kill each other. Why would Jesus do this? I'm not entirely sure, but I have a few thoughts. Thanks for asking. First, I think he saw unique gifts and passions and a whole set of relationships, a whole network of people that, that these men would bring to the table that would maybe extend his reach into other communities. We see that as soon as he invited Matthew to be a part of this group, like he's over at Matthew's house that night having dinner with other tax collectors and sinners, presumably Matthew's friends. So maybe Jesus thought these guys could get him into other communities of people that maybe he didn't know right away and wanted to know these other groups of people. Second, I think that Jesus knew that, that learning new things often involves a certain amount of discomfort. Being confronted with new ideas that challenge our current beliefs and understandings isn't always pleasant. It isn't always easy to be challenged with new ideas, but it does create the ideal state for learning new things. And see, I think Simon had some things to learn about himself and about God and about how God was at work by, by wrestling a little bit with Matthew and Matthew's views. And I think Matthew had just as much to learn from Simon by wrestling with him. And how much did the guys learn after, about Jesus' love after Peter denied Jesus and was restored by him? And what were the conversations like after Judas betrayed Jesus? Maybe, hey, guys, how did he fall away? Maybe we need to do something. Maybe we should have been closer to him, helped him a little bit. Or they're blown away by this deep love that Jesus showed to Judas by even washing his feet the night that he was betrayed. See, I think Jesus knew 
that if they couldn't learn to love one another as a part of a group that he called to be close to him, they didn't have any chance of loving people who were far from him. They needed practice learning how to love enemies right within their own group. People who had different perspectives on God, who had posing ideas about politics, and who sometimes acted like enemies. And Jesus loved every one of these guys to the very end. He showed them what it looks like to love your enemies, demonstrating the depths of his love by serving them and by going to the cross and laying down his life for them. And he challenged and inspired them to do the same for others. Set down your individual rights, your agendas, your political opinions, your personal aspirations in order to embrace the third way by making God's love and love for others your priority, even enemies. There is nothing more third way than loving our enemies. And the disciples passed this on to the next generation. And the next generation passed it on to the next, and the next, and the next. So how about us? See, in our own community, our own church, Orchard Hill Church, we've got people across the entire continuum of religious and political beliefs. We have people with liberal and conservative ideas about the Bible, about economics, about immigration, about gun rights, about LGBTQ and gender issues and every other social, political, religious issue that you could possibly imagine. That's right. That means right here in the seats, right here online, right, we have people who think differently than us. Some of us have enemies right here in this room. Makes me sweat a little bit. We're no different than Jesus' disciples, right? Sometimes we have enemies in our own neighborhoods. Like, I, I think sometimes I've driven by some neighborhoods, driven by, I'm way home, and I've seen some sign in the yard, and I'm like, oh, I just want to go destroy that sign in the middle of the night, <laughs> yank it out, get rid Like, I haven't yet. Don't worry, I haven't done that yet. <laughs> sometimes we have enemies in our own families, in our own homes, could be for a number of reasons, the way somebody's betrayed us or the way somebody's denying us, or maybe it's deeply divided issues within our own homes. I mean, how many of you have heard somebody say, we didn't, we didn't raise you to think that way or to act that way? I've talked to students who have said, I can't share this. I can't be honest about what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling or what I'm going through with my family because I would not be welcome in the home anymore. As uncomfortable as it is to say, we sometimes have enemies in our own families, in our own neighborhoods, in our own church, in our own communities. Now, Jesus doesn't ask us to stop believing what we believe and just agree with our enemies. And Jesus doesn't tell us not to discuss and debate important issues with our enemies. And Jesus doesn't ask us to ignore the pain that maybe has been caused by some of our enemies. What Jesus asks us to do is to love our enemies. 
to pray for them, to look for ways to bless them, to add value to their lives as we can. This is the third way. I don't know about you, but this is really, really hard for me. In fact, I told a friend this week, I don't know if I can teach this because I'm not sure how excited I am about actually getting with this program. Like this is really hard to do, especially in a world today that, that values our cancel culture so highly. Right, where that, that people actually, it seems like the world puts a much higher value on people who know how to be snarky and make enemies. And so young people, listen to me because you're growing up in this culture right now that's actually like, like making enemies has become a sport. That people are being cheered on for this. Right, when somebody does something that we disagree with or that's socially inappropriate or, the, or socially offensive to us, we don't just attack or go after the, uh, after the ideas. We go after the person. And better yet, we go after the whole group of people. And we don't do it privately. We do it publicly trying to add as much social pressure right, to, to cancel them as we possibly can. We don't even take time to know of the thing that's being said was taken out of context or what it really meant. There's no offer of grace. There's just a rush to shame people. No wonder people want a group that thinks like them and looks like them because we need the protection and the shelter of that group so we're not standing alone when this sort of thing happens to us. And it makes us, someone like me just want to isolate and run away from all of it. And neither of these our third way, right? They are such a far cry from God's third way, where in perfect love, God causes the sun to shine on the evil. And he brings the rain on the crops of those people who are unrighteous. I believe this third way kind of love is what our world needs right now, maybe more than ever. And I believe Jesus is calling his church, Team Jesus, those who profess to follow him, to not just make claims about this kind of love while clinging to the world's values, and not just make a bunch of rules that we're going to follow. I believe Jesus is calling his church to trust him and to love our enemies. How? How do we do this? I think one way we do this is by listening to them. Because I believe that listening is loving. Jesus' brother James isn't the only one who taught this, but he does say it perhaps the clearest. Right? He writes to a group of, of first century Jewish Christians. These are people who were Jewish, who now believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're following Jesus in a town or an area where there aren't Jewish people and there aren't Christian people. There's just a bunch of Gentiles. So there's a whole bunch of opposing beliefs where they're living and different ideas on ways of life. There's a whole bunch of enemies around them. And James says to this group of followers of Jesus, he says this, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. James says, here's what it looks like to love your enemies. Here's what it looks like to, to love in a community of people who oppose you. It's listening. 
Listening is loving. Because when we do the opposite, when we're slow to listen and we're quick to speak, we're quick to become angry. And that doesn't make us or anyone else right with God. But listening can help us be right with God. It can enlarge our perspectives and our understanding of who God is and what God's up to and who we are and who others are. Help us to join with what God is doing. Eugene Peterson says we should post this idea at all intersections, at every intersection, this idea of lead with your ears, not with your tongue. So one story to wrap up. I was listening to a man share his story about being addicted to painkillers last week. He was actually teaching a class on how to have difficult conversations with people who disagree. And he, and he shared how, how addiction to painkillers had ruined a lot of his relationships and made him an enemy of a lot of his friends and his family. And he said, you know, what happens is when somebody's addicted to something like this, what will happen is the family will pull together an intervention. Right? They pull all the close friends and the families together to tell the person how bad they're being, how, how, how horrible their addiction is destroying their lives. And if they continue to, to live in this addiction, that they can no longer stand with them and be next to them. And it didn't work. In fact, he made the comment and pointed out, he said, you know, when people do this sort of thing, when they're quick to speak and they're not slow to listen and they're quick to get angry, interventions like this, they actually cause more harm than good. That's what research tells us. So after an intervention, he's kind of left on his own, he's isolated, and he goes to his doctor to get some painkillers, because now he's probably really feeling the pain. And he's expecting a fight from his doctor, he's expecting the doctor to get after him and do the same thing that his family had done to him. And So he goes to the doctor, prepared to defend himself, and the doctor looks at him and he says, so tell me about your pain. Tell me about your pain. And then he listened. And the doctor said, tell me about this botched surgery that led to this pain. And then the doctor listened. And he said, tell me about your pain today. What kind of pain are you in today? And he listened. He said, tell me about what those painkillers do for you and how they affect your relationships and other things in your life. And then he listened. He said, tell me, when you look ahead five years, what, what does the picture of your life look like? What, is, what does your life look like in five years? And he listened. And after he's done sharing the story, the doctor said, that sounds like a great picture. Man, that sounds like a great picture for your life. Now tell me, what part of that picture, does any part of the picture have painkillers in it? And he listened. As the addict told him, no, the doctor finally spoke and said, listen, I need you to know that you're being addicted to painkillers had nothing to do with you. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't cause this addiction. And you have an incredible vision for your life, one that doesn't include painkillers. 
And I think I can help you get there. The guy sharing this story said immediately he was just totally disarmed. He was set free of all of the shame, all of the sense of failure, all of the sense of guilt that he'd experienced from his addiction. And this addict who had walked in, prepared for a fight, was suddenly freed up to leave his addiction behind. As this doctor entered into the shame and the guilt and met him in his aloneness and his isolation and brought him hope and belief that his life could actually be better. And he did it by listening. Because listening is love. And love is power. The power to make us right again with God. What would this look like to do with people who oppose us? What would it look like to listen like this to to people who oppose our ideas or who live differently than us, to look for the common ground, to look for the common good, to look for the bigger picture, to look for how we might work together to follow Jesus in this. See, Jesus says, love your enemies. And when we are quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger, we show the world a picture of God's love. He doesn't love like the world loves. He doesn't love only when we earn it, like religious people love. God loves perfectly, unconditionally, even his enemies. And God himself is quick to listen and slow to anger. This is third way kind of love. Will you pray with me? Father, I just confess that this is a challenging teaching for me and that uh, on a lot of days I wonder how much I even want to be a part of this because it is so hard and because it does trigger me in different ways and sometimes instead of bringing out the best of me it brings out the worst in me so God we need your spirit we need your strength we need your help to walk in this way Lord, it is a high calling, but it is a calling that can change the world, that can change our lives, that can bring your kingdom here to earth. And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, that your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven, that we would be a part of that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.